This podcast is brought to you by Yeshivat Tekoa under the auspices of the Steinsalt Center. The Steinsalt Center is responsible for all the activities of Rabbi Adin Ebeni Israel Steinsaltz. Its goal is to promote the Rabbi's mission of Let My People Know, making a world of Jewish knowledge accessible to all. The center's activities include publishing the Rabbi's writings and teachings, establishing educational programs and centers, and much more. For more information, please Google the Steinsalt Center or enter the link in the podcast description. The Thirteen-Petaled Rose, a discourse on the essence of Jewish existence and belief. Written by Rabbi Evan Yisrael Steinsaltz. Chapter 8. Repentance Repentance is one of the ultimate spiritual realities at the core of Jewish faith. Its significance goes far beyond the narrow meaning of contrition or regret for sin, and it embraces a number of concepts considered to be fundamental to the very existence of the world. Certain sages go so far as to include repentance among the entities created before the world itself. The implication of this remarkable statement is that repentance is a universal, primordial phenomenon. In such a context, it has two meanings. One is that it is embedded in the root structure of the world. The other that before man was created, he was given the possibility of changing the course of his life. In this latter sense, repentance is the highest expression of man's capacity to choose freely. It is a manifestation of the divine in man. Man can extricate himself from the binding web of his life, from the chain of causality that otherwise compels him to follow a path of no return. Repentance also comprises the notion that man has a measure of control over his existence in all dimensions, including time. Time flows in one direction. It is impossible to undo or even to alter an action after it has occurred and become an event, an objective fact. However, even though the past is fixed, Repentance admits of an ascendancy over it, of the possibility of changing its significance in the context of the present and the future. This is why repentance has been presented as something created before the world itself. In a world of the inexorable flow of time, in which all objects and events are interconnected in a relationship of cause and effect, repentance is the exception. It is the potential for something else. The Hebrew word for repentance, teshuvah, has three different though related meanings. First, it denotes return, 
a going back to God or to the Jewish faith. Second, it can mean turning about or turning to, adopting another orientation or direction in life. Third, teshuvah signifies response. The root meaning is return to God or to Judaism in the inclusive sense of embracing in faith, thought, and deed. On the simplest, most literal level, the possibility of return can only exist for someone who was once there, says it's an adult who retains childhood memories or other recollections of Jewish life. But it is not possible for someone to return who was never there, who has no memories of a Jewish way of life, for whom Judaism is not a personal, but a historical or biological heritage, or no more than an epithet that gives him a certain meaningless identity. The answer is unequivocally in the affirmative, for, on the more profound level, repentance as return reaches beyond such personal configurations. It is indeed a return to Judaism, but not to the external framework, not to the religious norms that man seeks to understand or to integrate into with their clear-cut formulae, directives, actions, and rituals. It is a return to one's own paradigm, to the prototype of the Jewish person. Intellectually, this paradigm may be perceived as a historic reality to which one is personally related, but beyond this is the memory of the essential archetype that is a part of the soul structure of the individual Jew. In spite of the vast range of ways in which a Jew can alienate himself from his past and express himself in foreign cultural forms, he nevertheless retains a metaphysically almost genetically imprinted image of his Jewishness. To use a metaphor from the world of botany, a change of climate, soul, or other physical conditions can induce marked alterations in the form and the functioning of a plant, and even the adoption of characteristics of other species and genera. But the unique paradigm or prototype persists. Reattachment to one's prototype may be expressed in many ways, not only in accepting a faith or a credo or in fulfilling certain traditional obligations. As he liberates himself from alien influences, the penitent can only gradually straighten himself out. He has to overcome the forms engraved by time and place before he can reach his own image. He must break free of the chains, the limitations, and the restrictions imposed by environment and education. If pursued aimlessly, with no clear goal, this primal search does not transcend the urge to be free. Without a vector, it can be spiritually exhausting and may never lead to a genuine discovery of the true self. In this respect, not in vain, has the Torah been perceived as a system of knowledge and insights that guide the individual Jew to reach his own pattern of selfhood. The mutual relationship between the individual Jew and Judaism, between the man and his God, 
depends on the fact that Judaism is not only the law, the prescribed religious practice, but is a life framework that embraces his entire existence. Furthermore, it is ultimately the only framework in which, in his aloneness and in his search, he will be able to find himself. Whereas potentially a man can adapt himself, there exists, whether he acknowledges it or not, a path that is his own, which relates to him, to his family, to his home. Repentance is a complex process. Sometimes a man's entire life is no more than an ongoing act of repentance on several levels. It has been said that a man's path of spiritual development, whether he has sinned or not, is in a certain sense a path of repentance. It is an endeavor to break away from the past and reach a higher level. However, notwithstanding the complexity and the deeply felt difficulties involved, there is a clear simplicity in the elemental point that is the point of the turning. Remoteness from God is, of course, not a matter of physical distance, but a spiritual problem of relationship. The person who is not going along the right path is not farther away from God, but is rather a man whose soul is oriented toward and relating with other objects. The starting point of repentance is precisely this fulcrum point upon which a person turns himself about, away from the pursuit of what he craves, and confronts his desire to approach God. This is the moment of conversion, the crucial moment of repentance. It should be noted that generally this does not occur as a moment of great self-awareness. Though a person may be acutely conscious of the moment of repentance, the knowledge can come later. It is in fact rare for repentance to take the form of a sudden dramatic conversion, and it generally takes the form of a series of small turnings. Irrespective of the degree of awareness, several spiritual factors come together in the process of conversion. Severance is an essential factor. The repentant cuts himself off from his past as though saying, everything in my life up to this point is now alien to me. Chronologically or historically, it may be part of me, but I no longer accept it as such. With a new goal in life, a person assumes a new identity. Aims and aspirations are such major expressions of the personality that renouncing them amounts to a severance of the old self. The moment of turning thus involves not only a change of attitude, but also a metamorphosis. When the process is fully realized, it includes a departure from, a rejection of, and a regret for the past, and an acceptance, a promise of change in the future. The sharper the turning, the more deeply conscious it is, the more prominent will these aspects be. A shaking free of the past, a transfiguration of self, and an eager thrust forward into a new identity. Repentance also includes the expectance of a response, of a confirmation from God that this indeed 
is the way, that this is the direction. Nevertheless, the essence of repentance is bound up more with turning than with response. When response is direct and immediate, the process of repentance cannot continue because it has in a way arrived at its goal, whereas one of its essential components is an increase of tension, the tension of the ongoing experience and of yearning. As long as the act of repentance lasts, the seeking for response continues, and the soul still strives to receive from elsewhere the answer, the pardon. Response is not always given, and even when it is, it is not the same for every man. Repentance is a gradual process. Final response is awarded not to specific isolated acts, but to the whole, the various components, the desire to act, the performing of the deed based on anticipation, the yearning, disappointment, and hope are rewarded, if at all, by partial answers. In other words, a response to turning is given to a man as something on account, the rest to be paid out later. A man generally hears the long-for answer, not when he puts his question, not when he is struggling, but when he pauses on a summit and looks back on his life. Jewish thought pays little attention to inner tranquility and peace of mind. The feeling of, behold, I've arrived, could well undermine the capacity to continue, suggesting as it does that the infinite can be reached in a finite number of steps. In fact, the very concept of the divine as infinite implies an activity that is endless, of which one must never grow weary. At every rung of his ascent, the penitent, like any person who follows the way of God, perceives mainly the remoteness. Only in looking back can one obtain some idea of the distance already covered, of the degree of progress. Repentance does not bring a sense of serenity or of completion, but stimulates a reaching out in further effort. Indeed, the power and the potential of repentance lie in increased incentive and enhanced capacity to follow the path even farther. The response is often no more than an assurance that one is in fact capable of repenting, and its efficacy lies in the growing awareness with time that one indeed is proceeding on the right path. In this manner, the conditions are created in which repentance is no longer an isolated act, but has become a permanent possibility, a constant process of going toward. It is going that is both the rejection of what was once axiomatic and an acceptance of new goals. The paths of the penitent and of the man who has merely lost his direction differ only in terms of the aim, not in going itself. The Jewish approach to life considers the man who has stopped going, he who has a feeling of completion of peace, of a great light from above that has brought him to rest, to be someone who has lost his way. Only he whom the light continues to beckon, for whom the light is as distant as ever, only he can be considered to have received some sort of response. 
The path a man has taken is revealed to him only in retrospect, in the contemplation of the past that grants confidence in what lies ahead. This awareness is in fact the reward, and it is conditional on the continuation of the return. The essence of repentance has frequently been found in the poetic lines of the Song of Songs. Chapter 1, verse 4, The king had brought me to his chamber. This verse has been interpreted as meaning that he whose search has reached a certain level feels that he is in the palace of the king. He goes from room to room, from hall to hall, seeking him out. However, the king's palace is an endless series of worlds, and as a man proceeds in his search from room to room, he holds only the end of the string. It is nevertheless a continuous going, a going after God, a going to God, day after day, year after year. Repentance is not just a psychological phenomenon, a storm within a human teacup, but is a process that can affect real change in the world, in all the worlds. Every human action elicits certain inevitable results that extend beyond their immediate context, passing from one level of existence to another, from one aspect of reality to another. The act of repentance is, in the first place, a severance of the chain of cause and effect in which one transgression follows inevitably upon another. Beyond this, it is an attempt to nullify and even to alter the past. This can be achieved only when man subjectively shatters the order of his own existence. The thrust of repentance is to break through the ordinary limits of the self. Obviously, this cannot take place within the routine of life, but it can be an ongoing activity throughout life. Repentance is thus something that persists. It is an ever-renewed extrication from causality and limitation. When man senses the wrongness, evil, and emptiness in his life, it is not enough that he yearns for God or try to change his way of life. Repentance is more than aspiration and yearning, for it involves the sense of despair. And it is this very despair, and paradoxically the sin that precedes it, that gives man the possibility of overleaping his past. The desperation of the endeavor to separate himself from his past, to reach heights that the innocent and the ordinary man is not even aware of, gives the penitent the power to break the inexorability of his fate, sometimes in a way that involves a total destruction of his past, his goals, and almost all of his personality. Nevertheless, this level of repentance is only a beginning, for all of the penitent's past actions continue to operate. The sins he committed and the injuries he inflicted exist as such in time. Even though the present has been altered, earlier actions and their consequences continue to generate a chain of cause and effects. The significance of the past can be changed only at the higher level 
of repentance called tikkun. The first stage in the process of tikkun is of equilibration. For every wrong deed in his past, the penitent is required to perform certain acts that surpass what is demanded of an ordinary individual to complement and balance the picture of his life. He must build and create anew and change the order of good and evil in such a way that not only his current life activity acquires new form and direction, but that the totality of his life receives a consistently positive value. The highest level of repentance, however, lies beyond the correction of sinful deeds and the creation of independent new patterns that counterweigh past sins and injuries. It is reached when the change and the correction penetrate the very essence of the sins once committed and, as the sages say, create the condition in which the man's transgressions become his merits. This level of tikkun is reached when a person draws from his failings not only the ability to do good, but the power to fall again and again, and notwithstanding, to transform more extensive and important segments of life. It is using the knowledge of the sin of the past and transforming it into such an extraordinary thirst for good that it becomes a divine force. The more a man was sunk in evil, the more anxious he becomes for good. This level of being in which failings no longer exert a negative influence on the penitent, in which they no longer reduce his stature or sap his strength, but serve to raise him to stimulate his progress, this is the condition of genuine tikkun. Thus, the complete correction of past evil cannot be brought about merely by acknowledgement of wrong and contrition. Indeed, this acknowledgement often leads in practice to a loss of incentive, a state of passivity, of depression. Furthermore, the very preoccupation with memories of an evil impulse may well revive that impulse's hold on a person. In genuine tikkun, everything that was once invested in the forces of evil is elevated to receive another meaning within a new way of life. Deeds once performed with a negative intention are transformed into a completely new category of activity. To be sure, forces of evil that had parasitically attached themselves to a person are not easily compelled to the act in the direction of the good. Spiritual possibilities of which a man who has not sinned can never even gain an awareness have to emerge and become a driving force. The penitent thus does more than return to his proper place. He performs an act of amendment of cosmic significance. He restores the sparks of holiness which had been captured by the powers of evil. The sparks that he had dragged down and attached to himself are now raised up with him, and a host of forces of evil return and are transformed to forces of good. This is the significance of the statement in the Talmud that in the place where a completely repentant person stands, even the most saintly cannot enter, because the penitent has at his disposal 
not only the forces of good in his soul and in the world, but also those of evil, which he transforms into essences of holiness. Thank you.